I am emphatic about getting into an academia cancer facility, cancer center, because that is where the predominant expertise lies and where most of the research is being done. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me is Randall Broad. He's the author of It's an Extraordinary Life, Don't Miss It. He's a cancer survivor and the host of a radio show called C-Sessions, which is also a podcast. I met Randy about 10 years ago. He had been told he had a few months to live and to get his life in order. So he wrote a book and that's when our paths crossed. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. And yet here you are 10 years later, still alive. Yeah, I've been called a lot of things by the healthcare community. One was an anomaly, but that was a senior doctor at one of the major research facilities. I won't mention any names, but <laughs> anyway, it was pretty funny at the time. I do speaking from time to time, and I went to New York, and I was in front of a bunch of researchers for the pharmaceutical industry, and I had a vice president of research at a major pharmaceutical in the middle of my presentation says, I think you need to go back to your doctor and verify that you actually had this disease because there is no way you should be alive today. Needless to say, I shared that with my doctor. I don't know that I've ever seen him get quite that excited. And what do you attribute this to that you're still with us? I guess I'm just not done or maybe God just is not bored with me yet. I feel that I've got more to do. As you mentioned, I started this program called C-Sessions. And the purpose of that, I, I do a lot of outreach to the healthcare community, mostly cancer patients. I'm kind of a cancer lightning rod, if you will. Anybody that knows me who knows somebody or they get diagnosed, I'll get a call or an email or a text, basically help them get situated, especially the ones that are newly diagnosed. Because there's a lot of things that you know, when you hear the words, you have cancer, your world changes pretty quick. One of the last things that most people are thinking about is where or how am I going to be treated? They're obviously thinking about their job or their kids or their family, their lifespan, and they don't think too much about treatment. So that's one of the things that gets left behind, if you will. And, and unfortunately, we buy healthcare differently than just about any service in the world. And it's challenging. So I felt the need to be a resource to help people in this transition and to where to go and what questions to ask. And so that's what the program is really about, is to help improve the communication between patients and their providers, communicating on both sides of the stethoscope. I love that. When we first started talking about this, I couldn't get clear on what you were doing because I'd never had a cancer diagnosis and I'd never had anyone in my family. But then I had a friend that was diagnosed. So of course I said, call Randy. Because I knew you would talk her into maybe a second opinion. It's amazing how many people don't know even that there are specialists in oncology. I, I come across it all the time. They just think they need to see a quote-unquote oncologist. I was fortunate. I actually fired my first team because <laughs> I was at a quote-unquote general hospital. I feel like that's why you're still alive. Well, there's no question about it, Lori. Mm -hmm. um, what happened, I was where I had been treated my practically since, well, since I was in junior high. It's where I was diagnosed. My general practitioner says, oh, we have great doctors here, great staff. We're going to be very, very conscientious and take you every step of the way. Well, I had three of the most. The three stooges? <laughs> 
I won't quite go there, but <laughs> I got diagnosed by a, a pulmonologist because I had coughed up blood. Mm. He didn't think, he took an x-ray and didn't see anything, and he said, you probably have mild case of pneumonia. Go home. Yeah. And he says, but just so you know, you might have lung cancer. And I said, okay, and what am I supposed to do with what you just shared? He goes, well, I could do a bronchoscopy, but that's where I'd have to go into your lung and look around. And you don't want people just going willy-nilly into your lung because we can introduce things. I said, okay, but you just told me something. And I, you know, I mean, I realize I'm low probability or low risk or such, but nonetheless, you threw this on the table and he said, just go home. He goes, but if you cough up more blood, come back, we'll do the bronchoscopy. Well, fortunately, four days later, I coughed up more blood. So I went in on a Friday, he did a bronchoscopy, he found a mass, got the come back on Monday, we'll tell you what it is, come back on Monday, sitting in the office. He comes in, he goes, you have stage three, possibly stage four non-small cell lung cancer. It is malignant. You don't need me anymore. You need an oncologist, and I wouldn't wait too long to find one. He reached out, shook my hand. He says, I've got a tea time in an hour. Got to go. Good luck. Wow. That was how I was told I had lung cancer. Plus, you've never smoked. Well, I wasn't. Well, I can't say that I never had any smoke enter my lungs, but I was not a smoker. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave it there. (laughs) Details, details. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I wasn't in a radon factory and I never had asbestos. It's just the thing is about lung cancer, if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. And a lot of people don't realize that. And by the way, not to digress, but top diagnosed people with lung cancer in this country right now are women in their 50s who never smoked, just so you know. And you know, what's interesting is that of all the cancers, people are so sympathetic, but with lung cancer, they have this stigma stigma of, well, you deserve it. They don't even ask. Yeah, it's a a disease that we, quote unquote, give ourselves. Yeah. And again, when I go present or when I talk to somebody or I share, the first thing out of their mouth is, well, did you smoke? And it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. But the thing is, if you run into a bunch of lung cancer patients, that question will never come up. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of interesting because I always think, well, you know, if, if I told you I had brain cancer, would you ask me if I was really smart? <laughs> or if I told you I had colorectal cancer, would you ask me if I was full of crap? <laughs> I mean, so, but seriously, so just, yeah. But no one ever asks those questions for any of those. Right. But, they just have ultimate sympathy. Right. So you started this. C-Sessions, and it's a podcast, so they can listen to it on KKNW Wednesdays mm-hmm. at 4, right. or they can get it later from Podcast One or on the KKNW website. Correct. Tell us a little bit about the type of guests you've had. Well, let's see. This Today is going to be my fifth show. My first guest was from Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center, and along with a pharmaceutical professional here in the Seattle area, and we talked about disparities. Uh, in cancer care out in the community, and especially in rural with people of color or Hispanics, uh, because the difference in treatment and the outcomes is just astonishing. So that was extremely interesting. I had a doctor from Seattle Proton Therapy. A lot of people don't know anything about proton therapy. I mean, I raised my hand and guilty as charged. I didn't know anything about it until about two years ago when I just happened to be at a ASCO trade show. 
and stumbled upon it and then learned more about it. It's a very unknown secret. So I'm kind of trying to expel this information and get it out there so that people are aware of what some of these options are. And again, she was excellent. And then I had Congresswoman Susan Del Benny, along with a colleague, friend that I've worked with many times over the years out in Washington, D.C., with NCCS. What is NCCS? It's the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. They're an advocacy group that stumps the hill on behalf of cancer patients. I've gone back to D.C. multiple times. In fact, one of the times I went back, Nancy Pelosi called and said, we need a cancer patient to come and address Congress about (laughs) the Affordable Care Act, especially around existing conditions. Shelly came up to me, and who's the CEO, and she says, Randy, would you be open to doing this? And of course, I raised my hand. (laughs) And so I went over to the Capitol Hill and went to the Capitol and in her press briefing room and had Representative Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy's son, Mm. introduced me, who I had met there during John F. Kennedy's funeral, by the way, which was just ironic as all get out. Seriously, and we're approaching the date And he had never met his grandfather. He died before he was born. Really? Yeah. So it was- Is that in your book? No. We had a trip planned to go to D.C. when Kennedy was assassinated. We kept the plan to go. I remember my mom, I came home from school. I was in the third grade, I think. And she was on the phone with my dad and she says, should we go? And he said, absolutely, we're still going. So we went up there and we were there for the funeral. And when we went into the rotunda, I'm giving chills right now thinking about it, when Bobby Kennedy and Teddy and Jacqueline came in to kneel before the coffin. And Bobby Kennedy, we were in the rotunda, circular area, but I was this little kid and he walked over and he shook my hand. Oh. Thank me for being there. Wow. Yeah. And so when when, um, his son introduced me, he called me. He had to leave before I was done presenting. And he called me on my cell phone. He got it from Nancy's office. And I shared this story and I made him cry. He's just that this is the most unbelievable thing I've heard in some time. And um, it was quite unique. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. No, it's. And I heard you ask, you were going to talk about the next guest that was a hematologist. And he ended up with that type of cancer. And I remember so clearly you saying, wait a minute, is this kismet? Is this... Yeah. uh, Do you feel like you were chosen? You know, and he says, no, no. And I said, well, did you sleep next to the Petri dish a little too close? (laughs) He goes, no, but changed his life. And he started a program called All for Cure. He is doing some amazing work in getting the information out to not just people with heme disease, but in other cancers as well. And he's, it was just an amazing interview for me. It was amazing for me to listen to because what I realized is with all these trials that people that have cancer can go and look at the research and say, I want to try that. And it's interesting that you bring up trials because- In the country right now, about 3% of the population actually get put on a clinical trial. Really? Yeah, because they don't know, Mm -hmm. because they're not informed. And not only they're not informed, a lot of the physicians out in the rural areas aren't informed. The drugs, the technology is changing so quickly, especially around these targeted therapies, immunotherapies. It would be impossible for a general oncologist to possibly keep up on all the different treatment options for all the different cancers. It, it would be absolutely impossible. And there probably are more specialists now as well, correct? Yes. This is one of the things that I really focus on when I talk to anybody that is newly diagnosed that reaches out. 
as you brought up earlier about second opinions, I am emphatic about getting into an academia cancer facility, cancer center, because that is where the predominant expertise lies and where most of the research is being done. And you do have a myriad of specialists in all the cancer cancer types there. Whereas if you're out in a community hospital, it's usually just a general oncologist. A mutual friend of ours now from Spokane was diagnosed and somehow she called you, you got her over here and basically saved her life. Well, she likes to remind me that and I bless her heart. She's doing well. She was introduced to me through a mutual friend, someone who I worked with over 20 years ago who I haven't seen. She lives in Arizona now, but she saw my postings on Facebook. And so she reached out to me and she said, would you please contact her? And I said, well, you can have her contact me because that's what I do. I remember distinctly when she first was telling me her story and she was diagnosed in rural America. I remember asking her, how are you feeling about what your doctor's telling you? And she says, well, I'm freaking out. And I said, good, you should be. I said, I want to make a phone call to my doctor, to the chief of staff nurse. You're going to have to call them, but I want to give them a heads up first. She called in. She got in to see him. She was operated on within two weeks. And she was being told by her doctor over in eastern Washington they were going to take a wait-and-see approach. Well, Hmm. Do you think it's going to go away on its own? Right. And you know what I love, Randy, is every time you tell me a story, your approach, it touches my heart because you always ask a question. You don't come in saying, this is what you need to do. You always ask, what's happened so far? And I love that because I feel like people aren't curious. And then the, the general public, if they haven't dealt with cancer and a friend gets it, They just get scared. They want to fix them. But you come in and you ask all these questions. And I love that because we want to be seen and heard. And we have a diagnosis that is terrifying. Like Mm. you said, suddenly you've been told, I mean, you're just coughing. And then you're told maybe, you know, you better hurry and get an oncologist. Asking the questions and being honoring is so awesome. And then the person trusts you. And then you come in with the information you have. Well, thank you, Lori. That means a lot. But yes, it's, I think it is important because obviously to ask the questions, to find out where they are emotionally, where they are physically, what is their thought patterns of what they've uncovered so far? What kind of research, if any, have they even done? That just, again, helps me in my guiding them to wherever they need to go next. Mm -hmm. It makes them more aware. We all have heard get a second opinion, but most of us, we just go with our doctor. And that's very true. And I see that all happen quite a bit. In fact, who we were speaking about, when she asked him, should I get a second opinion? He said, no, you don't need one. My doctor, when I remember asking him that (laughs) question way back when, he said, absolutely. And I said, well, it's interesting because so many say that as well, if every doctor, especially with cancer, says you don't need it, don't walk, run. Wow. And that's some very, very fine advice from a very skilled oncologist. So somebody listening has just been diagnosed or they know somebody. What's the next step in your estimation? Get a second opinion and get to academia in some shape, manner, or form 
One resource that I found, didn't realize this till maybe a couple of years after my diagnosis, was people in the field working for the pharmaceuticals, especially in the oncology space. They have been an enormous resource for me because one, they're skilled in the types of cancers. Many of them are out selling drugs for a very specific type. So they get trained exclusively and in depth on the value aspect of those drugs, the ups and the downs and the side effects, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that's really valuable is they're calling on multiple doctors throughout the region. A lot of times here in the state of Washington, they will cover Oregon, Idaho, Alaska. And then they're not just calling on academia, but they're calling on their general practitioners as well. So they know the politics They know who's doing clinical trials. They know the efficacy rates, et cetera, et cetera. And they're an amazing resource. And like I say, I had to learn that. But I have some very close contacts with several major, uh, with Eli Lilly, AstraZeneca, Genentech, the major players that are especially around lung cancer. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Either on Facebook or you have a C-Sessions page. I have page. a C-Session page. Obviously, I have a personal page. LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot for business. I post all my C-Session podcasts on LinkedIn and on Facebook. I'm not big on Twitter. Those two are those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. I've never said no to anybody that has reached out. To- I know you haven't. So you're curious and you ask questions. I think if somebody is being diagnosed, to be curious to ask questions, not only of your doctor, but you don't want to go and research so you scare yourself, but ask questions, like you said, clinical trials, pharmaceuticals, academia. Be curious and find out where you can get the help you need. Well, and Dr. Google, I mean, there's a lot of people (laughs) that will poo-poo that, but there's an enormous amount of information. In fact, I wouldn't bet most of the doctors out in rural communities, that's where they're getting most of their information. Mm. But if you search the specific disease that you get, you will be amazed at what comes up. The other thing that I did not know existed when I first got diagnosed was that there are advocacy groups for the specific cancers, and there's quite a few for each one. Lung cancer, my gosh, at the time when I first discovered it, again, it was like about a year or two out. There was longevity, there was the Bonnie J. Adario, there was LCA, there was half a dozen other ones, and then pancreatic cancer, PANCAN is a very good one. Susan G. Komen, I mean, my gosh, they've put advocacy on the planet and I didn't even think about it. And by the way, Susan G. Komen has raised millions and millions and millions of dollars to go towards funding for research. And breast cancer, you can see the correlation between the funding that has gone into that and the survival improvement because of it. It's just amazing. And so on a converse situation, Lung cancer, because of the stigma that it's a disease that we give ourselves, is one that is the least funded, yet it's the most deadly of all the cancers. It kills more than the other top four combined. So it just shows how the system works. Wow. Well, I am so glad that you have taken this on. (laughs) You are very brave. And now if they want to get a hold of you, they can go to C-Sessions. They can listen to it at four on Wednesdays on KKNW, 1150 
AM. <laughs> Look at Duo, you owe me a Coke. <laughs> and also Podcast One, just yeah. go to Podcast One, type in C-Sessions. You don't even need Randy's name. It'll come right up. Listen, if you know anyone, just listen and get educated so that if you have a friend or family member that gets cancer, you could be the one that says, hey, second opinion. Hey, University of Washington, academia, right. wherever you are. The more we know, remember G.I. Joe, yep. knowing is half the battle. <laughs> it's very true. And it's not that you want to try to become an oncologist yourself, but knowing what is out there available. And again, speaking with patients, I do believe that it helps to be empowered my guest today is a colorectal cancer patient who started an advocacy group after she was diagnosed. She has a program called Colon Town, and then its parent company is Paltown. She's just a rocket ship of a outreach person, and she's all about empowering patients and providing information. So one last thing about you before you go is you were a stunt double for... Now we're getting into ancient history. And the reason I'm drawing it out is because <laughs> if I would have said the name of who you were for, people would miss it. But now they're going, wait a minute, who, what? His name was Jeff Daniels. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> <I> known was, <laughs> actor. That <laughs> was in a movie. It was a movie called Checking Out. And I don't think they even got to the second reel of the movie before it went straight to video. But it was written by Joe Esterhaus of uh, Flashdance fame. And so he was very popular. And then a British director, it was a George Harrison production, handmade film. And I got to meet George Harrison. I actually got a personal concert by George Harrison. And I would tell you, if I'd have had a cell phone that I could have videotaped that, it would have made more money than the movie did. During lunch, as a stunt double, you're the last guy to get in line. Okay, they, they, For a there's meal. a hierarchy in the, in the crew. The grips and the electricians are first and goes down the line. And when you're a stunt double, you are nobody. And so we were in Los Angeles at the train station, which was in mothballs at the time. They've reopened it since. And we were shooting a scene in heaven where Jeff Daniels is dreaming that he's being inducted into heaven and he's meeting St. Peter, who happened to be in the original movie, Moby Dick. <laughs> anyway, George Harrison showed up one day on the set. Jeff decided to go into the cafeteria there or the bar where we were going to shoot this scene later. And he was starting to play the guitar. He was learning. He was playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, by the numbers. I was just waiting for the line to go down. And I was sitting there and all of a sudden I felt this presence behind me. And I turn around and there's George Harrison standing in the doorway and he's listening. And Jeff did the best acting of the, of the whole movie right there because he pretended like George wasn't there. <laughs> and so anyway, finally George couldn't take anymore. He says, do you mind? <laughs> and um, Jeff shakes his hand and he, and he hands the guitar over and George Harrison sat down and started playing a Bo Diddley song, strolled it into a Bob Dylan song at the end of it, one of his famous songs. And you can read all about that and more fun it's in stories. My book. Yeah. And it's an extraordinary life. Yeah. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Randy. Thank you, Lori. This has been wonderful as always. You are the best, and I really appreciate you. This is an excerpt from a C session with the woman we were talking about who was told not to get a second opinion. And as you know, you've been through it too, Randy, is that you can tell by the look on their face that something's not good. 
So he comes back and says, there's a spot in your lung, but we're going to watch it a couple months. Well, I, I didn't want to do that, but, you know, welcome to rural America here. I want them to do something. Interesting. Wanted yeah. to watch it for a couple of months, a spot on right. your lung. Did he explain right. what he wanted to watch? He wanted to see if it was growing. Okay. And did they do a biopsy at that time to see it, if it was no. malignant? No, they didn't do a biopsy. They just said they were going to watch it. And so how did you feel walking out of that doctor office that day? It's very concerning to you because you don't know, the doctor speak, you really don't know what that means. So I just came unglued because with worry and not knowing where I should go. And because once you get kind of a diagnosis, you know, you just go numb. You just really don't know what you heard and you, it just doesn't sink in. I got real uncomfortable with that. And then we waited another month. This was kind of gone on for three months. I thought I have to get another opinion. This this isn't right. Good. Because this isn't right. And at that point, I reconnected with one of my classmates from high school. She told me about you and maybe other options because you had gone through that. And right. so that's when I reached out to you and asking for advice because I wasn't comfortable waiting another couple months. And I remember that call fairly yeah. vividly. Right. And mm -hmm. I remember asking you those questions. When you walked out of the doctor, how did you feel? And you said, well, I'm freaking out. And I said, good. And I remember asking you again, right. have you gotten a second opinion? And if I recall, you told me no. My doctor told me I didn't need one. In my world, when anybody says a doctor tells you, you you don't need a second opinion. You need to not walk, but run. Well, right at that point that I'm not going to be waiting a couple more months while whatever is in my lung to grow. And that's why I reached out to you. But when you get that diagnosis, you just need someone to be there to kind of help you because you're not hearing what the doctor is saying. Totally. And you need to have somebody to guide you through the steps or you could be in serious trouble. And you know, if I wouldn't have, thank God I found you. I would be in serious trouble right now. I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary. It's just something that people don't realize. You have to have somebody there to help you because right. it just goes right over your head. I equate it to being on a bad cell phone call. You hear about every third word that comes out of the doctor's right. mouth. And in most cases, right. in the conversations that I had early on, they were speaking a different language anyway. So I didn't understand half of what they were talking about. And other than the fact that they were saying that they were going to treat it very seriously challenges with this and probably lose half a lung, et cetera, et cetera. Someone is dispelling this information on throwing it out you in a very short period of time. It's challenging to say the least. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today and we hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.